Afternoon, everyone. I was invited to give some remarks from the research that I've been coordinating called the MIPEX, which I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. I'm also going to draw on some new research that MPG is involved in with the European Commission on indicators of integration. So I understand that the series here is about access to welfare or welfare in itself. I'm going to be looking more at policies of access, so access to welfare and then also access to the statuses that entitle migrants to welfare. So my remarks are looking at the dynamics between international and European standards and then the kinds of national exchanges that we're seeing particularly in Europe and then to the paradigm of an evidence-based approach and particularly looking at whether these uh, new policies coming in through standard setting or through informal exchange are having an impact, whether we are even aware of that. So to what extent can we also see uh, an evidence-based approach in these questions about welfare? So my first section will be looking at the international standards there, where I'll be arguing that equal access to welfare has largely been uh, regulated by international law and increasingly by EU law for particular uh, migrant legal statuses. And then I'm going to focus in on some of the national dynamics uh, that we see where access to the statuses which entitled migrants to welfare benefits are increasingly being restricted by particular countries in Northwestern Europe for migrants who then actually use that right to welfare. I'm going to then be talking about what are the dynamics behind those changes, uh, particularly talking about the politicization of uh, integration, settlement issues, citizenship at the national level, and then how European policy exchanges, not formal standards, but the exchange around it, helps to justify those choices. And then end with um, more questions, I think, than answers to actually say that we don't see that much very good research on migrants' comparative use of uh, welfare benefits being, uh, to say, not only a question of their use compared to uh, non-immigrants, but also their use across countries. And related then to the whole discussion of, of legal integration, to see to what extent actually uh, use of welfare or the use of welfare as a uh, condition for a restriction has any kind of impact on uh, immigrants' poverty rates, their labor market participation, or eventually their access to statuses and access to citizenship. So just in case um, any of you are not familiar with the uh, Migrant Integration Policy Index, MIPEX, um, I was, have been coordinating the second and the third editions. third edition came out in uh, 2010. We have a series of um, policy indicators. If any of you have uh, read Martin Roos's paper, I mean, you understand what a policy indicator is. It's looking at law and policy based on the basis of publicly available documents. It's not capturing uh, any gaps in implementation or practice. It's not measuring uh, societal outcomes as such but it's arguing that uh, policies help to set the conditions for immigrants' participation by either closing off those opportunities or by opening them up or in some way in between, uh, how, somehow restricting them. And within MIPEX, we are looking so far at, at seven policy areas. I've starred areas that are really specific to non-EU 
citizens in Europe, because if you are an EU citizen, you basically have the rights on the labor market, you have the right to family unification, and you have the right to long-term settlement, whereas for, um, and also you have the right to vote in local elections. Whereas for non-EU citizens, their states have a, a great deal more discretion. And we cover the 27 EU member states for 2007 and 2010. We also cover Norway, Switzerland, and Canada for those two time periods. We added the US in um, the 2010 edition, and there we're looking then at federal policies. And uh, recently we've added Australia and Japan to the 2010 database, and we'll have some more countries soon. And then how it works is that um, we have a comparative questionnaire which is designed um, using some of the vocabulary that comes from EU standards or international norms and then we sent those to uh, legal experts who are independent of government. Each of them filled it in, checked the other one's answers and filled it in based on what were the policies at the end of May in 2010. So first points, as I said at least from, from where I sit uh, in Brussels, I can see that there are a, actually a wide set of international and European standards which govern the access to welfare benefits for different uh, migrant statuses. Obviously, I think that the protections are actually much stronger for those who are recognized refugees, which you see within the Geneva Convention, and actually through the establishment of the common European asylum system, which Britain opts out, you actually have not only strengthening of the Geneva Convention's requirements, but also the extension of those requirements to beneficiaries of subsidiary protection, who are not uh, directly covered, obviously, uh, to the Geneva Convention. Across all of these areas, I think what distinguishes the way in which uh, access to welfare is uh, governed is with, through the principle of equal treatment with nationals. If any of you are familiar with the Geneva Convention, I mean, this strikes you automatically that it's always argued with equal, either equal access with nationals, or if it's, a, let's say, a lesser status, it might be uh, equal treatment as the most favorable treatment uh, in the country. But so largely, we're talking about um, granting equal treatment as nationals do. Largely, then, these uh, rights to welfare has have a basic residence basis. So it might be just uh, residence in the country or might be a, a certain duration of residence in the country. And then partly, it is true in inter it's certainly true in international law and it has become also a reality in uh, EU law that this is actually status-based. So it's not just about having a certain legal status, but fragmentation is, uh, is a reality through international and also through the EU norms where as you'll see, I'm going to go through and cover group by group. So, as I said, first we have uh, recognized refugees, and then through EU law, we have these protections for the beneficiaries of subsidiary protection, guaranteeing equal access uh, to welfare for these uh, humanitarian migrants. And then all migrants are actually covered through many of the general international conventions, although since they are not explicitly mentioned, the impact, I would say, of those conventions on national legislation is uh, rather weak, uh, which is why, through international law, we have tried to develop more specific mechanisms for groups, such as for stateless persons, which also governs uh, some of their social rights. And then we do have, the, of course, the specific convention on migrant workers, 
But in this context um, it, in which I'm operating, looking at a lot of the destination countries in Europe or globally, the convention is a point of, of reference and perhaps inspiration, but it, it does not have that binding force. At the European level, we do have several Council of Europe conventions which also regulate the social rights of different uh, migrant statuses. This is something uh, that's actually out of my area of understanding, so I will gloss over it. And instead, I will focus more on the EU um, legal framework, which has its advantages because it applies to all member states who are cooperating in the area of justice and home affairs, um, and it has greater enforcement mechanisms than Council of Europe conventions. So the most uh, binding, which you are all probably familiar with, is the 2004 Free Movement Directive, which brings together a number of pieces of legislation and also the jurisprudence of the uh, European Court of Justice establishing the rights of EU citizens to move freely and guaranteeing largely their equal access to, uh, to welfare benefits and to social rights without any opt-outs in the member states. The 2000 Racial Equality Directive also is largely dealing with the rights of EU citizens. It does apply to non-citizens, although its protections are weaker because nationality discrimination is not particularly addressed. But here, already in the Racial Equality Directive, you at least see that EU citizens' rights are expanded in the sense that uh, social security uh, and social advantages cannot discriminate uh, against people because of their racial or ethnic uh, background. And these general provisions are extended with the 2008 uh, EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, where we do have opt-outs like here in uh, the UK and I think also in Poland, if I'm not uh, mistaken, which again solidifies EU citizens' rights uh, to, uh, in the social area. When we start then to come to migrant workers and family members in EU contexts, here the relative directives that are regulating their access to welfare benefits are the 2005 Family Reunion Directive, which I think is 2003-86, and the Long-Term Residence Directive, which I think is 2003-106. Here we have opt-outs for the United Kingdom, Ireland, and uh, Denmark, but these two uh, directives then regulate the rights of uh, third country nationals who obtain these statuses. So the Family Union Directive is for third country nationals who are reuniting with a third country national. So it does not regulate the social benefits of a third country national who is reuniting with, let's say, a British citizen in Britain. Nor does it regulate the rights of a third country national who is reuniting with uh, a Polish citizen in Britain, because that's actually covered by the 2004 Directive. And then the Long-Term Residence Directive creates a EC status, that is uh, the same across the member states that opt in, so that after no more than five years, a legal third country national can apply for the status, which guarantees them equal access, including in the area of uh, welfare social advantages, and also grants them free movement within the EU, depending on conditions that might be imposed by a second country. Now, there are a number of, of gaps uh, that you can see. Um, one of the first is that for quite some time we did not have any kind of EU regulation looking at third country national uh, migrant workers and this picture is still not complete. Last year we had the final adoption of what's known as the single residence and work permit uh, which unfortunately is not single so in the sense that um, 
If you are a, let's say, a regular temporary migrant worker, you can get access uh, then to a single residence and work permit. That way you don't have to apply for first a residence permit and then a work permit, which is the case in a, a number of member states. And uh, that single residence and work permit will give you a uniform set of equal social rights. There are some uh, migrant workers that fall out of the scope of this directive, seasonal workers, intercompany transfers. But uh, it is single in a certain sense. So this gives you an idea of the ways in which access to social rights are regulated through largely EU law, but also to some extent through international law, which helps to explain why when you start to look at national policies in the EU member states that are, um, do not opt out, that there is um, rather a good deal of convergence between these countries. So, so Orange concerns in MIPEX the rights of third country national migrant workers. The uh, yellow here is looking at the rights that are given to reunited family members. And the green here is looking at the rights that are granted to long-term or permanent uh, residence permit holders. And 100% uh, in each of these areas would mean uh, equal treatment. So for uh, migrant workers, it would mean equal treatment with national workers. For uh, the uh, green, it would mean the equal treatment of long-term residents with nationals. And for the yellow, it would mean the equal treatment of reunited family members and their sponsors. And so here I've taken uh, the EU 12 and the EU 15. It's just dividing uh, the EU in half and taking the member states uh, who exceeded before 2004, I think it's relevant because most of these countries have become major countries of immigration. And then the EU-12, uh, many of whom have not become major destination countries, I mean, they're slowly becoming them, Czech Republic, Poland, Cyprus, but largely haven't recognized this fact also in legislation. And there you can see just by comparing these two that actually there are uh, relatively few differences in terms of the rights that they give, and that's because these rights are regulated by EU law. Now, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg question, because member states had to agree this legislation, and often they were able to come to agreement on minimum standards where they already had this legislation in practice. That was certainly true of the EU 15. So you wouldn't necessarily argue that uh, the EU legislation in this area has has raised standards um, across Europe. However, for a number of the EU 12 countries, um, they lacked explicit legislation in this area. Uh, so either it was very discretionary or we couldn't talk about a specific legal entitlement. So uh, the existence of these uh, directives which were adopted in 2003 have certainly had an impact in securing um, or at least giving a better legal framework to this kind of access to rights. Um, and certainly today, with these uh, basic minimum standards, countries cannot go back uh, on these commitments. I don't think that's as much of an issue with the access to rights for a status, but as you're going to see later on, it's certainly an issue in terms of the conditions that member states will choose to impose in order to access this status. So um, you can also get some appreciation of uh, the possible impact of uh, EU law in terms of access to rights generally by comparing the uh, EU countries to Denmark, Ireland, and the United Kingdom, all three of whom opt out of the directives uh, that regulate the access of third country nationals to these kinds of rights. 
So you see that in, in terms of Denmark or the United Kingdom, in MIPEX we found that there is still uh, largely equal treatment in, in many areas of rights, I'm not just talking about uh, welfare rights, for long-term residents. Um, although you start to see uh, important differences in terms of the, uh, whether family members can fully access uh, benefits and fully participate as opposed to their sponsor, um, and also in terms of uh, workers' rights, so equal access, for example, to all areas of social security. And um, you can see that this difference is particularly strong in a country like Ireland, where actually Ireland has no family unification status to speak of, um, so it's all discretionary. Um, and it also has no long-term residence status to speak of. Um, you can be given a, a long-term right to work in the country. Um, you can be given another type of long-term status, but again, it's completely discretionary. So if countries like Ireland and uh, perhaps also Denmark and the United Kingdom had to comply with this EU law, um, you would see a, a rising of those standards. And then I thought it was interesting to just compare the three traditional countries of immigration that we include in the MIPEC sample, <coughs> Australia, Canada, and uh, the United States. I'm going to get more into detail to explain why uh, Australia and the United States don't uh, score 100% on this framework, but just to point out that, for example, for Canada, if you look across the different types of temporary migrants or permanent migrants, uh, you see that equal treatment is largely the norm. So for, in terms of workers' rights, we ask about access to trade unions. Um, we ask about uh, equal rights to uh, working conditions, equal access to social security measures, and also to some of the other benefits that would come with it, like uh, maternity leave, um, unemployment benefits. And then we ask about um, rights, your right to information, whether in legislation specifically asks. It requires that uh, migrant workers be informed of their rights. With uh, family reunification, we ask whether the family members have the right to an autonomous permit, independent of their sponsor, and we ask if that's true for the spouses and the children when they become adults, but also of other family members, where uh, their family reunion procedures often much more discretionary. And then we ask whether uh, the adult family members have the equal and immediate right um, to uh, employment, to uh, social benefits, housing benefits, and also to education and training in the way of their sponsor. And then for long-term residents, we ask if there is an equal right to uh, employment, to education, to uh, social benefits, and to the recognition of their qualifications. So then just to go through and uh, make these points uh, point by point, here is just the indicator where we ask whether uh, long-term or permanent residents have uh, equal access to uh, social security, social assistance, healthcare, and housing. Um, and you see that uh, largely that is the case, um, not only across the EU because of the EU directive in this area, but also in a number of other countries. Um, there are some exceptions. Uh, Cyprus, as you'll see later, is a, a notorious case uh, of a country which is ignoring uh, EU legislation in this area that would create a settlement path for the migrant workers that come there. And then two other exemptions, uh, the United States, where ever since 1996 there has been a five-year exclusion of uh, legal permanent residents to access to federal welfare benefits. And also Australia, where there is a similar type of exclusion for um, their permanent residents for the first two years of their settlement. Then here is, a, actually it's the indicator is, is worded in the same way, 
um, but we're looking again to see whether reunited family members have uh, equal access as uh, their sponsor to uh, social security assistance, healthcare, and housing. Um, you see a few more exceptions that pop up. Uh, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Slovakia. Although um, they just put some more conditions on equal access, and that's allowed by the directive. Then you have Denmark and the United Kingdom, where there are more exclusions in terms of recourse to public funds. And Ireland, as I mentioned, where there actually is um, no legal status to speak of of reunited family members, so very discretionary. When we looked at um, migrant, temporary migrant workers uh, themselves, we saw a lot more variation uh, across countries, where we found that about half of the EU member states have some sort of restriction. Uh, it can be that there are some which are limited only to nationals or to EU citizens. Um, more common, though, were kinds of residence uh, duration restrictions that would apply to uh, third country nationals in areas like maternity leave, social security payments, unemployment benefits. The most egregious case would be Denmark, where if you have not been in the system for, I think it's something like about 40 years, then you do not get equal access to pensions. The new government is planning on reforming this because it meant that many migrants who would come to Denmark would never get full access to their pensions, or be that, be that actually anyone who had left Denmark for a long period of time. And uh, for migrant workers, I also added in their access to vocational training and education. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily think of this as, as welfare as such, um, but I think it actually is rather important to ask whether uh, a temporary migrant worker has the entitlements to be taking up other social benefits, which might mean actually that they're not working full-time or part-time, or, or whether basically they're tied to their employment without any other uh, measures that might help their labor market mobility. And here you find uh, a similar array of residence or nationality-based restrictions, like I talked about, for access to social security. And in this area, it's particularly with regard to the social grants or access to higher education. In most countries, a temporary migrant worker can access the employment service or can take up some kind of part-time vocational training. So actually, you see here quite, quite a wide variety among EU member states that opt in here. And again, that's because, as I said, there has not been much EU regulation on migrant workers, but this will change with the single residence and work permit. Um, I'm not going to go into it in detail. I, uh, there's a MyPix blog that I wrote about it, so you can read more about it if you're interested. But um, actually, this uh, directive will fill a major gap um, because member states will have to give um, most migrant workers equal access to social security, equal access to working conditions, or sorry, equal treatment in terms of working conditions, uh, trade unions, employment services, most areas of vocational training and education, and also uh, the equal right to recognize their qualifications. So in the next three years, we expect um, major changes across most member states, but particularly centrally in Eastern Europe, where, as I had hinted before, they benefit actually most from this kind of standard-setting exercise. And uh, lastly, in MIPEX, we look at the strength of the anti-discrimination laws. So here, countries uh, that were in black are countries uh, where only uh, race or ethnic origin is uh, prohibited in terms of unequal treatment in access to social protection, including social security. We, this also is where we had to put, because of the, the, the scoring system, we had to put countries that have no, no protection like uh, Japan, where there is just no anti-discrimination law 
to speak of. Um, but in most other cases, it's because just race or uh, ethnicity is covered. And so you see in most of the countries that in terms of access to social security, there cannot be unequal treatment in terms of race, ethnicity, religion or belief, and also uh, nationality. Obviously, race and ethnic origin is um, most dealt with because of this EU directive. And then you start to see more gaps where you come to religion or belief. That is because uh, that ground is not fully regulated yet at the European level. There is a racial equality directive which uh, prohibits uh, unequal treatment for race and ethnic origin in all areas of life. And then there is an employment equality directive which um, in the area of employment and vocational training prohibits many grounds of discrimination like um, religion or belief, age, uh, disability, and sexual orientation. But there's not yet a horizontal directive that, that fills that gap. And so, as you can see, this gap uh, does then have an impact on national legislation. And then the largest gaps are in terms of uh, nationality discrimination, which um, are not within the EU's mandate to set legislation and very much depend country by country. One brief note uh, here that, that we found that the grounds uh, for discrimination protections were most uneven in the countries that did not yet have a single equality act, uh, like you've adopted here, or, or Sweden has recently adopted. Um, it's kind of a vogue. Uh, in uh, international circles on anti-discrimination. But one interesting example for is, uh, is Australia. When you actually start to look at anti-discrimination law in Australia, you see that there are a number of gaps, for example, in this area of social security between these different states and also at the federal level. All right, so this gives you a bit of the overview by country of the areas that I presented on those uh, particular indicators, just to give you an idea of where you might see uh, more gaps than others. So. Just to point out that there is quite a difference between uh, the traditional countries of immigration in the way that they regulate this, uh, whereas Canada uses more of an equal treatment approach and Australia and the United States have uh, longer time restrictions. You don't see that much variation among uh, EU member states themselves, um, one of the major uh, cases being uh, Cyprus, where generally there is no way as a third country national to access social benefits. Now, there is then a trend going on at the member state level. You might say it's in reaction to their limited room for maneuver at the European level. You might say that it's due to more domestic uh, political forces, such as the rise of the far right, um, the politicization generally of migrants uh, in, in relation to the welfare state, but be that as it may, um, there are a number of member states then that are looking at how they might be able to have some kind of impact on, I would say more the perception of migrants' use of welfare. They do that then by not regulating their direct access to welfare, but instead regulating their access to legal statuses that would entitle them to welfare. So, um, first of all, um, you can look at citizenship legislation. Here we're just looking at the ordinary naturalization procedures uh, in countries. And this is an indicator asking whether your economic resources are a requirement for ordinary naturalization. And so uh, countries that appear in pink are countries where there is uh, no economic resource requirement. Countries in blue are countries where there is a basic requirement in terms of having some kind of legal income. And then uh, black are countries uh, that have requirements with regard to uh, employment 
or accessing social uh, benefits, or an extremely discretionary uh, procedure where migrants actually do not know what would uh, disqualify them for citizenship. So I don't know how many people are really aware of this, but I mean, money does matter for access to citizenship in a number of European countries. That has traditionally been the case in terms of the kinds of requirements that you will see in nationality laws, um, the extent to which they are applied or are reinforced, I think, is um, certainly a new trend. If you look back to the NATAC publication, which was done uh, around 2004 or 2005, they at the time had identified actually a trend away from uh, economic resource requirements. Uh, so this was a study that was evaluating the procedures uh, for citizenship in 15 new member states. And they noted that Belgium and the Netherlands, when they had reformed their nationality laws, removed these uh, economic requirements, um, largely from a question of, of democratic values. I mean, income should not be related, should not be a condition for, for citizenship, at least not in the uh, contemporary idea of a democracy. But you can see that actually since um, the NATAC publication came out, there has actually been a return to this kind of approach, which I heard an Austrian uh, researcher called Jus Pecuniae. I, I can't remember his name, but I'm sure that if you look up Jus Pecuniae, he's probably the only person that's talked about it. You started to see these changes in Austria, where economic resources were, to some extent, taken into account, but uh, since the 2000s have been continually tightened, where slowly but surely the kinds of types of, uh, of sources that can be used to prove a legal income have been restricted. And then, for example, the years in which you can access social benefits has also been restricted. And interestingly, uh, the two examples that were given in the NATEC publication, Belgium and the Netherlands, are planning to reintroduce uh, income requirements for ordinary naturalization. And this has uh, figured in the UK proposal on earned citizenship, where uh, migrant workers would have to show that they have maintained their jobs. Um, and uh, I, I believe that we could expect such a kind of requirement, uh, given the current government's approach to settlement, if they were to reopen discussions on citizenship. So these countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the UK, have been um, identified by Mark Howard, who's done a, a similar type of index, only looking at citizenship, as uh, policy reversals, where we see a, a reverse in this trend towards liberalization of citizenship. Now. One of the most dynamic areas uh, for me in terms of looking at the links between legal status and welfare is with regard to uh, settlement and family reunification. To give you a background of the European policy dynamics here, we had in 2000 the proposals coming from the European Commission for those two directives that I mentioned, family reunification and long-term residence. And if you look at that initial proposal, they basically wanted to give third country nationals the same rights that an EU citizen has when an EU citizen moves from one country to another. Which basically means that if you are, let's say, a Pole who's legally resident in the United Kingdom, so long as you are not a clear public policy or public security threat, um, you may reunite with your family member. That is because the European Union uh, in 1999 adopted as its guiding principles uh, a de the Tempura Declaration, which argued that third country nationals should be given legal statuses which are comparable to those of EU citizens. 
and the family unification and long-term residence proposals were expressions of that principle. What it meant then in terms of I income and other requirements was that there were benchmarks established in the proposals arguing that what should be required of a third country national should largely be based on what nationals generally need in order to live in the country. So if you're going to live together in a, in a family, you need some kind of legal income, whatever the source. The source could also be social assistance. Now, it took about three years for uh, the directive to be adopted um, because unanimity was required among the 15 EU member states. And that process then led to a watering down of the text, which meant that um, what are called May clauses were inserted, allowing member states greater room for maneuver. Um, and one of them had to do with the income requirement. So at first, this income requirement uh, was introduced, that one should have any legal income at, at the level of uh, social assistance, because third country nationals were given a very wide definition of their possible family just like it is for EU citizens, meaning that you could be reunited with uh, not just your spouse, but also if you had a partner, instead it could be your partner. Um, not just your minor children, but also adult children who are dependent on you or other types of dependents like parents or grandparents. But eventually then, uh, the argument was that the income requirement would need to have to be raised if we had such a wide definition of the family. And then later, you saw that that definition of the family was restricted so that um, third country nationals only have an explicit right to reunification with their nuclear family members. Other family members may be allowed on a, on a discretionary basis. So we ended up then with uh, an European standard that argues that um, member states um, may set a, a legal income level at 100% of the uh, level of social assistance, or they may set it at 100% of the minimum wage which might be vastly different uh, depending on the country. And if they choose to, they could exclude certain forms of social assistance from that calculation. And then one related uh, measure which I think you have to take into account when asking um, about how welfare links to legal status are the fees that are actually required for these legal statuses, which are not regulated in directives, which means that you can have actually a very wide range of fees. Well, the income that a migrant might have to prove uh, might be based on 100% of the minimum wage, they might have to pay 600 euros uh, for the fee without knowing the outcome of the procedure. So that you could find in countries like Cyprus or the Netherlands exorbitant fees, which are not an income requirement, but are certainly related to your economic resources. So now, since the directives were adopted on family unification and long-term uh, long residence, you've seen the most active discussions at the national level around uh, family reunification. So already while the process was going on of negotiation, you had Denmark, which opts out of this, um, where the minority government depended on the support of the Danish People's Party, the far-right party, which led to the kind of restrictions to access to social security, which I already mentioned, um, but also to uh, the the hardening of the income requirement, basically the exclusion of all forms of social assistance to the point that one can really only prove uh, one's income through employment or through property or through profits. Similar types of uh, restrictions not to that level were then uh, adopted in uh, Austria and in Germany and in the Netherlands and in France. But those four countries fall within the EU directive. 
So they could set the, the top level at 100% of the minimum wage, and they could start to exclude various sorts of uh, social benefits and social assistance from the calculation. This continues to be a very dynamic and contentious area because it's not really clear what the EU standard is. Um, member states thought that they only had to read the article itself, which says that uh, member states may set these standards and may exclude social assistance. So these types of countries have uh, introduced uh, specific requirements, and if you do not meet the requirements, you are rejected. But there was a landmark case by the European Court of Justice called the Chacrin case, which has completely changed people's understanding of uh, this directive. In brief, Mr. Chacroon was living in the Netherlands. He was of Moroccan origin. He had lived in the Netherlands, I think, since 1978. Uh, he retired. And then after he retired, he wanted to be reunited with his wife, who was still in Morocco. And he was, of course, still a Moroccan citizen. And the uh, Dutch government rejected him because they said, well, sorry, sir, but you're on a retirement benefit. Um, you're not working, so we can't count your benefit. You cannot live with your wife. Also at the time, the Dutch uh, had required that you make 120% of the minimum wage and not 100% because they argued that it was at 120% in the Netherlands that you can start to use different kinds of social benefits. So 100% of the minimum wage didn't make sense with their goal, which was to discourage um, migrants from becoming dependent on welfare. And interestingly, when the European Court of Justice intervened in this case, they said, well, but the, the purpose of this directive is equal treatment. The purpose is to reunite people as families because that gives them kinds of social cultural stability that they need in order to integrate. So um, there's also another part of the directive which argues that um, member states need to take into account a lot of different aspects of someone's life, uh, how long they lived in the country, their ties uh, to the country or to their country of origin which meant that um, the European Court of Justice concluded that you can't just be rejected out of hand because of this kind of definition. You have to make an individual assessment. And if Mr. Chacroon had a retirement, was living on his retirement because he'd worked in the Netherlands, then he should be allowed to stay in the Netherlands. And this kind of requirement was struck down. So the Netherlands now can only require 100% of the minimum wage and has to make an individual assessment. So this got a, a number of member states very uh, surprised which has led to a number of informal policy actions. I mean, some people would call this soft harmonization, some people would call this intergovernmentalism. Um, it's hard to say what it's going to lead to. But already then, you had, uh, around the same time, the French presidency, uh, which had adopted, you'll be aware of it, the European Pact on Asylum and Migration, where there, they got the other member states to agree that family unification is about managing migration, and that as part of that, uh, member states should require that migrants have an income, that they have housing, and that they speak the language. This has led to some more changes, interestingly. So you take a country like Sweden, which uh, required no income or housing uh, requirement specifically for family unification. But then the Liberal government, uh, I think in 2008, uh, introduced it, arguing that Sweden was the only country in Europe that had used this more favorable treatment. And so, therefore, Sweden should consider uh, having an income requirement. Belgium was also one of the countries, one of the two countries in Europe that did not have a uh, income or housing requirement. So, already in 2007, uh, uh, an income, uh, sorry, a housing requirement was adopted. And then, just last year, 
the Belgians have adopted a, a, a very tight income requirement and a very tight housing requirement. And there are more such uh, discussions going on. In Switzerland, for example, they are also talking about introducing uh, these pre-entry language tests. In Finland, they are looking at uh, Danish and uh, Norwegian policies so that Finnish uh, policies don't seem as relatively liberal because they consider that that is attracting asylum seekers who want to come uh, reunite with their families and then access the Finnish welfare state. And of course, uh, I mean, these discussions are, are being discussed today in the United Kingdom with discussions about the level of income that should be required for family unification. And um, in these discussions that you see at the national level, reference is often made to the other member states that have such high income requirements. Um, even though that's not the majority of member states, the discussion gives the impression that the country in question is too liberal or is not controlling enough for its other countries. And now we are in the midst of a very intensive European level debate, something where I haven't seen before the extent to which national politicization of this issue is being reflected at the European level. Um, the European Commission launched in November a green paper asking whether it should reopen this directive for possible revision. The Dutch government has been very actively lobbying their counterparts um, to revise this directive because, uh, like in Denmark, the minority government depends on the support of Herd Wilder's uh, PVV party. The condition is that the PVV will support the Dutch governments on economic issues if the Dutch government adopts uh, Wilder's policies on immigration, where his initial aim was to reduce legal immigration by 50%. Um, in order to meet that uh, aim, PVV asked the government very explicitly to not only restrict migration in terms of national policies, but also to renegotiate a number of the standards at the European level, because they were aware that the minimum standards for example, set by the Family Reunification Directive, limits their ability to, um, for example, uh, restrict migrants who have used various forms of welfare. So, if we walk through the various areas that I've talked about, um, here are the types of economic resource requirements that are required for long-term residents or, or permanent residents, depending on how the country talks about it. So, um, it's generally required, but you see that the levels are rather different. Um, pink countries are where it's basically at the level of social assistance so far. As I mentioned, that's now changed uh, in Belgium and in the Netherlands since my cuts. Then uh, countries in blue are where it's basically at the level of minimum wage. And countries in black are where uh, migrants basically have to prove access to employment, um, legal pay slips, uh, because they cannot use social assistance. And you see... Uh, a similar, a similar set, oh, sorry, here this is for family unification. So I, I pulled out um, what are the countries really in question. These are countries that will restrict largely access to citizenship, long-term residence, and family unification on the basis of uh, use of uh, social benefits. And so you see what countries we're talking about. Some of them are the ones that might not become surprising, uh, Austria, Denmark, France, uh, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, as I said, has restricted it since, um, Switzerland, now uh, increasingly the United Kingdom, um, and then perhaps two surprises, uh, Greece and Cyprus, which um, have had actually relatively restrictive legislation for their legal migrant workers in order to obtain more permanent statuses.
and end here with the more uh, tentative questions. So you can see that there is a, a greater politicization around access to legal status where the use of welfare is becoming a key condition. Um, but looking more broadly, um, I find that there are some basic questions which are relevant for a policy debate that have not been answered in many countries and certainly not at the EU level. Do migrants disproportionately use welfare? I know that this was a, a debate, I think it was last month, already here um, in the UK, um, but it's relatively unclear, uh, generally speaking. We are getting more interesting data at the European level to address these questions. So we now have EU integration indicators where we can better monitor um, migrants' income and their risk of poverty and social exclusion. Uh, these two indicators come from the EU 2020s plans about more inclusive uh, growth. So it's a way of mainstreaming migrants into discussions about poverty and social uh, inclusion. But uh, from that, we already can have some interesting results across countries. Perhaps not surprising that uh, foreign-born tend to have higher absolute and relative income uh, inequality compared to uh, the native-born. They have higher risks of poverty and social inclusion um, if you are a non-EU foreign-born, um, much more than if you're native-born or EU-born, meaning an EU citizen who's moved within the Union. And you see the kinds of countries where there's a disproportionately high risk of poverty for the non-EU foreign-born. Again, perhaps not, uh, not surprising given the policy context, but I think un uh, unaware by uh, many who study this issue, that it's not just uh, the Northwestern European countries like Austria or Belgium or Denmark or Finland or France where we see disproportionately high risk of poverty, but also countries in the South where migrants also are disproportionately more poor than their uh, fellow neighbors. Now, I wanted to draw your attention to an interesting study which has been using um, these EU indicators that come from uh, EU SILK, if you know that, the statistics on income and living conditions, that was done by the German think tank ISEA, um, where they then looked particularly into migrants' use of welfare benefits, because through the EU SILK you can see um, what, whether people are using uh, unemployment benefits, old age benefits, sickness benefits, and family benefits. And there they found that actually it's only in a limited number of countries where you see that the foreign-born use welfare benefits more than the native-born, and that's mostly due to their higher use of unemployment benefits and not other benefits. But then when you start to drill down into those um, statistics to see whether what's most relevant is one's migrant status or the other aspects of one's life, IZA found that what mattered more were socioeconomic status, because once you started to drill down, then actually the use of welfare benefits among the foreign-born was only higher in about a third of the EU member states, similar in about a third and lower in about a third. And then um, they also interestingly drilled down to look at eligibility to say is it just that migrants are in a different composition. So for example, they looked at whether unemployed foreign-born used benef uh, unemployment benefits as much as the unemployed native-born. And they found that actually the foreign-born who are unemployed tend to use unemployment benefits less than the native-born. So I uh, put up some of, their, um, some of their findings here. This is just the ratio of uh, foreign-born versus the native-born in terms of whether they use uh, all of the different types of welfare support. So um, they have here one, and one would be parity uh, between the foreign and native-born. 
So you can see um, a certain number of countries where there was disproportionately higher use of these types of benefits among the uh, foreign-born uh, countries like, surprisingly, Poland, but uh, France, Finland, Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. Then a number of countries where, where you basically see parity, and then uh, another, uh, actually a larger number of countries where the foreign-born were less likely to use all different types of uh, benefits. And again, if you start to uh, break it down, you see it's largely because of the use of unemployment support, where migrants tend to use it more than uh, the native, except in a very few number of countries, Cyprus, Ireland, and the Czech Republic. Also, to a certain extent, true if you look at um, whether foreign-born use uh, family and child supports more than uh, natives. But uh, certainly not the case when you look at their use of sickness and disability benefits. The foreign-born use those kind of benefits much less, except if you are an EU citizen who's living in Portugal. But we can maybe have an idea of who that is. And also that uh, the foreign-born tend to use the old-age supports much less, except if you are an EU citizen in Spain. Again, uh, perhaps not surprising. Here is the graphic that explains their findings when they uh, did a probate regression analysis using age, education, gender, and number of children in household to control for socioeconomic status. So again, here you see that there are still a few number of countries where the foreign-born are more likely to use these welfare benefits, but then there are actually also many countries where it's uh, much less likely when you take into account people's backgrounds. And then a second question that I find is, is not really well answered so far in the policy evaluation literature, I'd say more, is whether welfare really matters for uh, social or legal integration. So interestingly, the same ICA study found that if you again continue to control for the socioeconomic status, the foreign-born who receive benefits are still at a much greater risk of poverty than the native-born who receive benefits. So there are other factors, of course, that explain poverty. And perhaps in that sense, actually, migrants' lower uptake of benefits might be a problem in terms of social inclusion. Then there have been, interestingly, uh, more and more, uh, more policy evaluation studies looking at how some of these uh, restrictions that I mentioned are having an impact on some of their intended goals. So are these uh, restrictions and access to family reunion, long-term residence, and citizenship for, uh, because of uh, welfare dependency leading migrants to become more independent and more active in the labor market? It is a very new area, uh, but there have been two interesting European projects here, ProSynt and Intech, um, which took together uh, academic studies that have been done and also government evaluations in a few of those uh, most restrictive countries that I mentioned, where they find that uh, the introduction of various kinds of language and integration tests would disproportionately affect people who are lower educated or poor, and as such, it will also have a disproportionate effect on women. Partly it's because these people are less likely to pass, but also, which is a bit missed by the statistics, they are much less likely to apply. So they disappear from a lot of the application statistics. Um, this process is referred to as self-selection, which I find a bit deceiving as a term because it's not really as if it's a matter of choice, but more a matter of one's conditions. In a related way, actually, they find that for these uh, groups, um, access to courses or access to other kinds of support matters more for uh, <coughs> passing these kinds of tests. So uh, that kind of support matters uh, more than, let's say, um, the different kind of incentives that might be given by restricting uh, access. 
related to this kind of research, we have done a, a briefing on family reunion where we looked at some of the studies that have been done in Denmark and the Netherlands, which found that the kinds of income requirements that have been put in place for uh, family reunification have had very little effect on the labor market participation of people. Um, and I call this basically compliance effect. So um, what they found, in a, particularly in a Dutch study, that um, migrants will basically scramble in any way possible to meet the requirement of having a certain income, meaning that they will take on part-time work, they will work overtime, they will quit their studies in order to get enough income to meet the requirement at that point in time, after which point, once their families are reunited, uh, the, in any case, their labor market participation is not sustainable, and they go back to whatever their plans were. And similarly, um, these, these income requirements, uh, these studies in Denmark and the Netherlands find this kind of self-selection effect. So income requirements, perhaps not surprisingly, disproportionately, disproportionately affect the poor and the low educated, although also uh, the young. Um, so it not only um, can discourage them more from applying or from passing, which we call persistence, you know, persistence in meeting the family unification requirements, but interestingly, um, they are uh, disproportionately less able to use uh, what are called resettlement options, i.e. The, the, the EU route. Uh, let's say, if you cannot uh, meet the requirement in the Netherlands, you might move to Belgium, and then as an EU citizen, you have your free movement rights, you have a very favorable, almost automatic right to reunite. Um, that's why it's called the EU route. And one speaks of the EU route between the Netherlands and Belgium, between uh, Germany and Austria, between uh, Denmark and Sweden, where you just have to cross the bridge. But also from research, we find that the people who can use those strategies are also those who have the most resources themselves, often those who are most economically or socially well off. So for migrants who tend to be poor or low educated, even that option is not available. So I think this um, burgeoning area of research is, is needed from a policy point of view to confront um, the designers of these policies with the intended uh, effects and ask them whether we are really seeing this in, in practice so that we can maybe get a bit of hold of wh why are we regulating access to a legal status with regard to welfare, what is the intention here, and indeed what is, what is the whole problem? Do we have a problem with uh, migrants' use of welfare across the European Union?